Good morning. Welcome. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim. I welcome your comments and your participation this morning. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together and studying your word. May we honor you. Be with us today. Send your spirit. May he guide in our thoughts, our speech, and our ability to help those around us see you more clearly. Amen. So this week is lesson number 10 in Acts, the third missionary journey. The memory text for this week was um, Acts twenty twenty four. Oh, backing up a little bit. The texts that we're covering are the end of, Act, of chapter 18, 19, 20, and the beginning of 21. So that's kind of the sequence of what we're covering. Um, the memory text was from tw- chapter 20, 24. I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. That last phrase, to testify the good news of God's grace, is basically what it's all about. I, I firmly believe that that's incredible. So anyway, um, Tim last week asked a question, and I wanted to ask the reverse of that question. And he said, why did Paul go out and evangelize? What was it? What was it to the benefit of those going out? Why did he do it? And we kind of came to the, or he, he kind of directed our thoughts to the fact that it helped those who were hurting, those who were sin-filled, become healed and become new and restored. My question is just the opposite. What was it in it for Paul? Why did Paul have to go out and do this? To help him feel better about the crimes that they committed that he didn't realize were crimes. Soothe his conscience. Yeah. Okay. Not so much soothe his conscience, just make him redeem himself. Well, the memory text almost says it. He counts his own life of no value. He's living to serve God and to share God with others. I mean, some people are more driven than others. Apparently, his personality was such that he was compulsive with this, that he felt he had to do it. Okay. Did he get any other benefits from this? I'm sure he did. Like what? what was, what's the benefit from someone working as an emissary for God? Seeing others accept Christ in their life. So that, that makes you feel good that you, that you have been able to share or whatever. It's the same benefit as standing up here teaching. When Wendell or I or Tim or, or Linda or anyone else has to teach, we learn the material better. I would dare say that as, as Paul shared his personal experience of conversion and the change in his character and his testimony, he was enlightened, greater enlightenment of God's character, his grace, uh, his message, his sacrifice, etc., etc. That's why God has asked us to be a part of this whole process because he knows that if we're sharing something that we have learned, it's going to change us, okay, because the teacher learns the most. Okay, so we've talked a lot in this class about natural law, how we're made, you know, what makes us tick and what makes us whole, 
Okay? We are made complete by serving others. Okay? And so, yes, Paul did this because it was to the benefit of the recipients. Okay? But this also made him, he would not have been a complete person. You are not complete unless you're serving others. And, we, and Tim's talked about the circle of, of life and other, other illustrations of this. But this really may, was for Paul's benefit as well as for his hearer's benefit because that's how we are. That's, that's the, the law. You know, the world has a template that says self is number one, books uh, are written, you know, look out for number one, etc. And it's all self, self, self. And that is degrading. That is death. We don't realize it at the time, but it is often. Um, we don't realize it. But God's kingdom, you, uh, the whole being, it, the principle and the law of the design is that it's for others. God, that's how God is, you know? And um, in Matthew 20, it's interesting that, you know, Acts 20 we're covering, but Matthew 20, um, a mother of two disciples, okay, and I have to remember, you had to remember something. I can't remember names, okay? So don't ask me the name of a disciple, okay? But anyway, um, this woman came to Christ and said, my two boys, I want to be number one, you know? And, um, James and John. Ah, good. Uh, okay. So I, I couldn't find it quickly. And so I was like, or whatever, it's not there. So anyway, um, so she came to them and said, Hey, you know, my two boys should be number one, you know, and Christ response to that. Okay. The disciples, um, were all upset, you know, and said, Hey, you know, this, this, this is not right. You know, we should be number one or whatever. And Matthew 20, 25 through 28. So Jesus called them all together and said, you know that the rulers of the heathen have power over their subjects and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way it shall be among you. If you want, if one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. And if one of you wants to be first, you must be the slave of the others. Like the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life to redeem many people. You know, you could, you could say this another way. The one who wants to be complete or mature or perfect, however you describe a being that is really what they're supposed to be, you need to be a servant. So... um I just, you know, last week we looked at the front side of that. I think we also need to look at the back side of that because what is in it for us? It makes us complete. But then these days, people draw lines of servanthood. They'll say, you know, you got to create boundaries, you know, protect yourself, don't enable, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of caveats that we put on servanthood. And perhaps some of them are mentally healthy. Well, I will have to say in response to that whole genre is that um, if you're damaged yourself, if you're diseased yourself and, and you're doing things to hurt your health or your psyche because of your mission or whatever, then maybe that's not healthy. 
Christ took people away, his disciples away for arrest, etc., or tried to. Um, but um, in the reading about Paul this the, during this um, week, etc., um, he often worked all night as a tent maker to try to make enough means so he could preach all day, you know. And he was not healthy. He was not. Um, he was not young at that point. Um, but anyway, all right. Um, what is a journey? When we talk about Paul's third missionary journey or whatever, what is a journey? How long does that last? A lifetime. Months. Months. Okay. Um, we have a nursing student in our house this semester. Um, she, last year, her, Chel- her name is Chelsea. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> she's, uh, she, last year she was in Zambia for n- nearly a year. Teach um, at the hospital over there, and she was there for a whole year. And I thought, wow, that's a long time. My daughter went to Ethiopia, no Kenya, um, for a year, and um, that's a long time. You know, it just seemed like forever. Um, Paul was in Ephesus for three years on this journey. Okay, if you count up, okay, he was traveling for this way, and then he was three years, and he was a year and a half, whatever. He was gone for four to five years. Four and a half to five years was this journey. Not paid for by the conference. Okay? Now, and these people who are going for this year, they, they actually end up paying to go for a year or whatever. That's their, their dollar, their spending, etc., but, but Paul went for four and a half to five years on this journey. He came back briefly, and then he took out again, you know. So um, I've thought about evangelists within our church or other people who I've, I've met who've been on the road a lot. And that really takes something out of you. Um, I remember, I think it was Dedimore said that after an evangelistic series, he had to go off and recharge, you know, recover um, spiritually as well as as physically after that. So I would call this a long-term mission assignment more than a word of journey, you know. So anyway, this um, and the sequence of things, of, of the, the verses we're covering this week, um, this was really a completion of Paul's second journey. In Acts 18.18, 18, Paul left Corinth, headed by, um, he had been there a year and a half, okay? So Paul was a year and a half in Corinth, and he met Priscilla and Aquila there, um, and then he left with them, stopped off in Ephesus, left it left uh, Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and headed on his trip back home to deliver the money for the poor people in, in Jerusalem. Ever wondered how Priscilla and Aquila met him? In a synagogue. What I didn't realize until this week is that in the synagogue, all the trades had to sit together. So the builders and carpenters and everything else sat in one section. The 
seamstresses and all that sort of stuff in another section, the merchants said another section, whatever. So when Paul came to a new town, he would inevitably, hey, where's the tent makers or the whatever? Now, tent making was only done in a few towns, mainly because um, they used goat hair, and only goat, a certain goat was good enough for the, to make the hair for the tents. It was a, a canvas-like stuff. And really what can, um, Paul was doing was taking rough goat hair, spinning it into coarse thread, and then weaving it into tents, into cloth that you could make tents out of, and or sails, you know. And um, the goat hair was a, a certain type. Well, he came into a synagogue, sat down in the cloth-making section or the sewing section or whatever, and who should be with him but Priscilla and Aquila, who had been booted out of Rome because... All the Jews were booted out of Rome, and they'd gone to Corinth. He met them there. You know, we'd never have a, a discussion that they were ever, quote, converted to Christianity, and yet they obviously were by some of the things they did. So anyway, um, he left them in Ephesus, and he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue, and then said, I will return. He wanted them to stay, but no, I got, I got to make it before um, the holiday so um, the third trip that Paul made, which is what we're talking about today, so he takes a northern trip through to what we call Turkey, okay, um, came to Ephesus, spent three years there, and um, the sequence of the text is it talks about Apollos, who had been there before he was, you know, and he had left some disciples, and then he had traveled on to Corinth. And um, Paul met 12 disciples in Ephesus. It's interesting. He met the 12 disciples. They were just different ones. <laughs> it wasn't our 12 disciples. It was 12 disciples of God or whatever. Um, and then there was a story of the, the sons of Sceva, Sceva or whatever it was that got beat up by the, the spirit-possessed man and and um, there were miracles, burning of books, and a riot. And then he, he, he went over and uh, went to Greece. And then on his return trip, uh, we have the, the story about Eutychus, who fell asleep, fell out the window, and he, he went back. Um, so that's kind of an overview of, of what was in the, the text. Um, I would like to ask, which is more important, the message you're given or how you give it? Why? For me, if my favorite meal is a steak, and you bring me a steak, but it's on a plate with bugs and rats and stuff on it, I don't want it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good analogy. <laughs> I think the message is the more important. I do too, because somebody can present a false message in a flowery, beautiful way, but it's still a false message. They, they both matter. It's your attitude of how you give the message. That's a hard one. People act because of how it emotionally affects them, not by the intellectual. When you make a decision... Okay, you act on your gut. You act on your emotion. 
even though you might have the knowledge. But people don't act on knowledge. They act on emotion. You're talking about the last lesson I gave in this class, okay? In which we talked about knowledge having no, benef- no benefit to your behavior. So all sex education, all these classes, everything, have no effect whatsoever on behavior. You know, but that, that's, that's, that's a lesson I, I talked before, so I won't get back to that one. But uh, anyway, um, it's very true. We, we do not act on what we know, pretty much, okay? The reason I ask this question is because when Paul came to Ephesus, he preached for three months in the synagogue, okay? And then they had this disagreement, and then he withdrew over to another place and had his Bible class next door, okay? And then after a couple years more, he got in trouble, and then he fled over to Corinth. And I thought, wait a minute. If you're truly doing what God is supposed to be doing, why do you have to leave? You know? Um, uh, well, that was the instruction Jesus gave. If you come to a town and they don't accept what you're saying, shake the dust off and move on uh, and, and, and do it there. Because all you'll do is end up... If people aren't accepting what you're saying and are fighting against you, all you're doing is just wasting your time at that point because they're not receptive at that point. Maybe later on they would be, but the people who haven't heard you, they need to hear about it. If you stayed in any one place too long anyway, you wouldn't get to all the other places that you need to go. So, I mean, they were instructed not to hang around if people weren't receptive. And not cast the pearls before swine. Do we have any illustrations of other people who left? Jesus himself. Okay. Say more. He tried to um, take a message to, uh, I can't remember. That's okay. Town, but okay. Yeah, in his famous quotes, that a prophet is unrecognized in his own town. Okay. And he left. And he spent a lot more time in a, in a different town where the people were receptive to the message. You know, it's interesting. Of all the people, Christ had the message. And how long did he have to do it? He knew in advance he had three and a half years. Okay? And yet, when he was presented with resistance, he withdrew. There's a, um, a, a, I have a couple passages to read. Um, Desire of Ages 181. Jesus knew that they would spare no efforts to create a division between his own disciples and those of John. He knew that the storm was gathering, which would sweep away one of the greatest prophets ever given to the world. Wishing to avoid all occasion for misunderstanding or dissension, he quietly ceased his labors and withdrew to Galilee. We also, while loyal to truth, should try to avoid all that may lead to discord and apprehension. For whenever these arise, they result in the loss of souls. Wait a minute. If we have the truth, you know. So, anyway. Whenever circumstances occur that threaten to cause division, we should follow the example of Jesus and John the Baptist. I had a couple other... Um, you mean we shouldn't feed people the truth whether they want it or not? 
Well, you know, that, that means that the truth is going away. You know? We read of the experience of Christ that at one time when the Pharisees held a council together, how they might destroy him, Jesus withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive, nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets, A bruised reed shall he not break, smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Just one statement that you might, in my reading, you know. um, He didn't go on a vacation. He withdrew, but he was still active. Okay? Even when he went, he fled the Tyre and Sidon. He was still active. Okay? So, um, Jesus offended the, the, the Pharisees by laying out before them the, whole, the hollowness of their piety and the unscrupulousness of their teachings. He often withdrew from the multitude to avoid an outbreak of hostility. On one occasion, he withdrew to the borders of Tyre and Sidon. There he entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid a mother with a sick daughter came with an urgent appeal for aid. Um, another one. Uh, well, I already read mostly the same thing. So anyway, I just thought it was incredible that um, Christ, who only had three and a half years, did not stick around if met with the opposition. And I like what it said. I think the key of what you just read was that a, a, a flat he wouldn't put out a, a bruised reed, he wouldn't break, quench. So I like that because some of us sometimes feel like we're just at our last little thread. <laughs> and it wouldn't take much to push us over the edge. And I like it that he takes those people, us, into consideration and realizes that argument and so one might push us one step too far, and he backs off and lets us have time to think about it. Again, he allows us the freedom to come to him rather than forcing himself on us. He didn't force himself on Mary. You know, he, he basically said, can I have permission to? And, I mean, he, he treats us that way consistently so that we know we have freedom. We know we have uh, his respect, and he doesn't want to lose even a single tiny delicate, faithless person, he doesn't want to lose them. He doesn't want to do what it would take, you know, or force them in any way. And I really appreciate that about him. We know that he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't force himself in. If we don't open the door, he doesn't come in. So. There's a, um, a little story about the translation of the Bible into one of the native languages in Africa. In Africa, at the, in that location, they, um, a thief will come up and knock on the door. A friend will come and call. So when the Bible translators came to translate the Bible, what do they do? They call. 
Does Christ does Christ stand at the at the door and knock? No. He stands in that language, he stands at the door and calls. But we still have to open the door. We have to open the door. Yeah. The latch is on the inside. So um the voice of Christ was not heard in the street in noisy contention with those who were opposed to his doctrine. Neither was his voice heard in the streets in prayer to his father to be heard of men. His voice was not heard in joyful mirth. His voice was not raised to exalt himself and to gain the applause and flattery of men. When engaged in teaching, he withdrew his disciples away from the noise and confusion of the busy city to some retired place more in harmony with the lessons of humility, piety, and virtue, which he would impress upon their minds. And there's... There's more, but anyway, you can look it up in the the notes if you if you're interested. So anyway, um, the news that had been carried to John concerning the success of Jesus was also born to Jerusalem. There was created against him jealousy, envy, and hatred. Jesus knew the hard hearts and darkened minds of the Pharisees, and they would spare no pains to create a division between his own disciples and those of John. That would greatly injure the work, so he quietly ceased to baptize and withdrew to Galilee. That's incredible. You know, I mean, he had the message, and yet he backed off. I don't always do that. Um, you know, I've, I've wondered in, in my decorum, in committee meetings, in the hospital, when things are not going the way that's right, you know, what do you do? Yes. I think in his wisdom, he does it both ways. Yes, he quietly stands at the door and knocks most of the time. Uh-huh. But it didn't appear that way that that's what he did when Saul was going to Damascus. Yeah. He got his attention other than just quietly speaking to him. So there are times when... In his wisdom, he sees that he has to actually do something else. Good point. When Paul arrived in, in, in um, Ephesus, he met 12 disciples, okay? Um, they were locals, okay? What did they believe? Do you have any idea? Why were they called disciples? Paul's made them first. Okay, Apollos. Okay, so we have the story previously uh, about Apollos and how he, okay, he was from Alexandria. We don't have a town like Alexandria currently in the world. Alexandria was the library of the world at the time. If you wanted to be intellectual, you went to Alexandria. Some people think Boston. What about Paris? There's, there's, lots, there's lots of cities that like to think of themselves, but this truly was the center where the big libraries were, where the smart people went there, intellectuals, etc. And that's where he grew up, or at least he was trained there. He came to Ephesus and was preaching and apparently was very eloquent in his discussions of the Bible and whatnot. And yet Priscilla and Aquila had to pull him off to the side and said, hey, you know, it's interesting how they did that, though. Like the previous discussion we've just had, they didn't stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, you're off there. They took him home to, to, to dinner. Okay? They took him home to dinner and said, by the way, 
have you thought of something else? And um, that is an admirable, admirable um, attribute of how they nurtured him. And then he became an even greater apostle, and he asked for permission to go to Corinth. And they sent letters of recommendation. Hey, hey listen to this guy. He's, he's good. Okay? And um, so, anyway. So he had, he had taught, so he had had some believers in Ephesus. Paul came. And what was his question to the believers in Ephesus? I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I've been baptized... Why didn't he ask about Christ? Well, he had already been baptized by John the Baptist. They knew about Christ, but they hadn't been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hadn't been presented to them yet. Okay, so I guess I still do not have an idea completely about why they had to be rebaptized. I think it's what she just said. They, they weren't introduced to the Holy Spirit yet. When they were introduced to the Holy Spirit, they were... The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. Christ was still on the earth. Not at this point. Not at well, this point. Come, no, I'm talking about when they had been baptized. If they were baptized by John oh, the Baptist. Oh, I, I see. So the John, baptized by John the Baptist. Yeah. So everyone after John the Baptist has to be rebaptized. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's... They had was it a water baptism anyway? Maybe it was just talking about the circumcision of the heart. Okay. Rebaptized. I just find it interesting that... Um, that Paul asked about the effects of Christ and not about Christ himself. His message was about Christ. But his message also was a testing message to say, what has it done in your life? What are you doing with this? And how are you being affected by what you believe? Kind of goes back to your statement about the emotion or whatever, our, our mental ways that we make decisions, etc., how it changes our behavior, you know. How do you know what you have, what you believe in? During my life, I think I've met many people who've been baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church who can give you a fairly good intellectual basis for their beliefs, but I don't think they've ever met Christ, you know. And um, I'm intrigued by Paul's approach to what do you believe and what has it done in your life? What effect has it had in your life? Do you know Christ? And how do you love somebody that you've never met? Yeah. A lot of people, you know, on earth just simply have a hard time even thinking about a relationship with a being who says he created them and who provides and so on, and yet you personally have never seen him or met him, but you are asked to love him. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, It's one thing to intellectually know about somebody, and it's another thing to actually love somebody you've never met. I mean, I think we have people on the Internet, people who've written letters in the past who've never really met, and they kind of felt in love with each other through the ideas that they express back and forth is one example I can think of, uh, kind of earthly example. makes my heart ache. There's a situation I'm aware of right now in which the couple is now dividing after a very brief collision course together. Um, They 
They thought they knew each other. They um, c- communed a lot by media and whatever, and they came together and now are struggling. Um, I don't know how much they're struggling anymore. I think they're kind of diverting or whatever, and it just makes your heart ache. But in, yeah. now in Christ, I mean, in the past, in the class, and anyway, we've learned that it's through experience, through His Word, and through nature that we learn about God. If somebody has no access, they always have access to nature. But I mean, if they have no access to his word or they've had no experience with him, it would be more difficult to know somebody that you've never seen or to love somebody you've never seen. I think it goes back also to our first question about um, what's the purpose of our ministry is also that's how we learn. By by beholding, we become changed and by working, we become changed in, in that as well. Yeah. Well, Paul had had all these theological discussions on Mars Hill. And didn't he say that when he went to Corinth that he decided that he would only preach to them Christ and him crucified only? agree with what Linda was saying as, as the most important thing. Because he could certainly debate with anybody as long as they wanted to. But finally he decided that knowing Christ was actually what was more important than winning those theological debates. On um, Acts 19, verse 8, Paul went to the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly with the people, holding discussions with them and trying to convince them about the kingdom of God. But some of them were stubborn and would not believe. And before the whole group, they said evil things about the way of the Lord. So Paul left them and took the believers with him. And every day he held discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, In other versions, it says they became hardened. We've talked about hardening in, in past in this class. What hardens your heart? Rejection of truth. Okay. Did God harden their hearts? Before you say no, okay. He designed life to function that way. So you may have, you may take the responsibility for it, uh, like, in Exodus with Pharaoh, but the reality is that he also designed life to operate around the uh, law of liberty, giving people the choice to listen to truth and reject it. So God didn't harden their hearts. He did by presenting truth. Okay, Paul didn't harden their hearts. Okay, although he did by presenting truth. Okay, so what is the process that hardens your heart? Choices. Okay. Is there other terms for that same process? In the chemical world, there are what they call catalysts, okay. which will cause something to harden, okay. or possibly you know, separate or whatever, if it's a long catalyst. So, you know, I see that as a parallel, because when you introduce certain things, like Tim is trying to do, for instance, like with the uh, design law paradigm, you're making people look at their whole relationship to God in a different way. You're asking people. You're not making them. You're asking them to make those decisions. And it's the same with Paul. You know, back in his day, he was asking people to completely take another look at being a Jew what it means to have had the word 
All right. So we've described this as a hardening. Is there a positive way you can describe this? Do we use words for the same process in a positive context? Sometimes we say your heart was softened. Softened to what? To be able to accept. You know, they may have had biases. They may have had a hard heart. Okay. The Holy Spirit comes in, truth comes in, you know, and, and, and their be, heart is Become so settled into the truth that they cannot be moved. Ah, so there is a hardening of your heart that happens in a positive way. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay? The process is design law. Okay? It's just whether you're being hardened into the truth or hardened into a way that's destroying you. Okay? There will come a time, we are told, that in earth history in which there will be only two divisions, you know, and there is hardening in both of those ways. You know, there's no way that you can take a Paul and, and convince him of any other thing. He was convinced. He, there's no way you could dissuade him from what he, he had come to know and, and trust and believe in God, in the kingdom of God. But I think the fundamental difference between the two extremes that you're describing is that people that are hardened into believing a lie, they have no desire or wish to learn anything else. Those that are hardened into the, the truth so that they cannot be moved have a, a an almost infinite desire to assimilate more truth. They understand that God is infinite, they are finite, the amount of truth to be unveil, unveiled is is infinite, so bring it on. We need more. So there's a key difference between hardening of the heart in air and hardening a heart in, in in God's message. Okay? Both are becoming ingrained and settled into a condition. Okay? But the message itself is having an effect. I think the the message of God in the kingdom is softening in nature and is opening in nature and is growing in nature. And when you're separated from God, you become more settled into your beliefs of whatever that is, etc. that's diverting you away from God. In Acts of the Apostles 2.72, when the apostle took up his work in Corinth, he realized that he must introduce most carefully the great truths he wished to teach. He knew that among his hearers would be proud believers in human theories and exponents of false systems of worship who were groping with blind eyes, hoping to find in the book of nature theories that would contradict the reality of the spiritual and immortal life as revealed in the scriptures. So they had a bias. There's a paradigm. Okay? He also knew that critics would be endeavor to controvert the Christian interpretation of the revealed world and that skeptics would treat the gospel of Christ with scoffing and derision. So the message of God does have an effect on our brains. It does harden us into a, a system of belief about God. So, you know, Luther... I can do it no other. You know? 
I am firmly convinced. Now, was Luther perfect? By no means. You read some of his things, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, his, um, etc. But, um, to think that, um, I mean, you could not convince him, you could not divert him from his passion for Christ. So, um, there's a lot of other uh, quotes along that um, line. Continuing on in Acts of the Apostles, um, he longed to see the light of the gospel of Christ piercing the darkness of their minds that they may see how offensive in the sight of God were their immoral practices. Why are immoral practices offensive to God? They destroy you. Compared to a parent who considers drug addiction or cancer diagnosis or something else that is destroying their child. God's children are not offensive to him. The things that are destroying them are. Okay? And too many times we have, you know, we are afraid. We tend to run away from the person that can help us because we're afraid. So, anyway, it is not human but divine power that works transformation of character. Those who plant and those who water do not cause the growth of the seed. They work under God as his appointed agencies, cooperating with him in his work. To the master worker belongs the honor and glory that comes with success. Um, so, anyway, um, where are we? So, the sons of Sceva, or whatever his name was, you know, S-C-E-V-A or whatever. Um, so it, the story is about these seven sons who were magicians who said, by the, the Christ who Paul preaches, you know, and then the, the, the Spirit, you know, beat him up and, and threw him out. I don't know how many of you have had the misfortune of working in an emergency room when a meth addict comes in well under the influence um, I I don't know where that strength comes from. Um, it it may come from the devil. It comes from some chemical. I don't I don't know it. But um, I've I've seen four grown men wrestle a little tiny lady and lose. Um, and so when I think of this story, I think of the emergency room and the experience that I've had with um, those individuals. But um, one thing that was was mentioned in the quarterly is the, uh, let me find it, um, the name of Christ is not a talisman, is not a magic potion. We now have a idea going out in Christianity about if you have certain names of God, it's better and the more names of God and the more whatever you have, the better. And there's whole books and, and meetings and groups and everything else with that. It's not magic. Have you seen anything in media, like either television or movies, that depicts a, an exorcism? There's a phrase that is commonly being used now as being depicted is, the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. And the... the 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 nuance in the 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 
the, the view of God that that presents is is very corrupting. You know, as our writing tells us, that compulsion it only exists yes. in Satan's government. Yes. The power of God is the power of truth. Okay, presented in love and the power of leaving people free. And that's not to say that God is not powerful. I mean, He can speak and, and whole things become become. But um, I am concerned when we use hocus pocus as part of our um, spiritual direction and how that can be used. If hocus, if we depend on hocus pocus, then if we use that as our spiritual media then we can also be diverted by other weird and wonderfuls. And I'm very concerned about the risk in taking that view of God. It does not make sense. So, One other thing along with this story was they had public confessions and burning of books. Is it ever appropriate to burn bad books? Yeah, it doesn't change your heart. Doesn't change your heart. Okay? I grew up in the 60s, 70s. Okay, in the operating room. When a, when a resident is there, they can't listen to me when there's music on for whatever reason. I don't know what happens. But anyway, they can't. Okay? When I was in North Carolina, I always had a box of music and I'd come in the operating room and if the music stopped, I'd stopped operating until they got the music going. You know, just, just you know, whatever. So now when I came here, I, f- I tried it, and it didn't work. The residents do not hear me if I have music on of any volume. So we operate in silence, which is great distur- um, disturbance to the assistants who are working around us. They like music. Um, but when a resident is not there, we crank up the music, and I'd say, crank it up until the anesthesia complains, and then back off just a little bit. Okay? And so, um, there is a, my favorite station right now is Simon and Garfunkel station on Pandora. It's, it's not just Simon and Garfunkel, but that's whatever the collection is called, etc. It's the, it's the sixties, okay? You know, I grew up in that era, that's kind of home to me, etc. And and we crank up the music and we operate. Um, it's great. Um, living through that era, though, I went to several camp meetings and other religious things in which there was burnings of things. Yeah. It, it was a fad. Burning oh, the, the, all sorts of burnings. Okay? You know... I can remember once, um, this tells you also about the space, you know, fad and everything else. We had a rocket in which all the sins and confessions were put in. It was supposed to blow up and go off and burn or whatever, etc. And then the fire marshal came out and they had to burn it right there in that spot. So that was a big disappointment. <laughs> but, um, so having lived through that, you know, and now if you mention in modern society about a book being banned or burned... That's a offense. Okay? Is there an equivalent good practice that we can do? I mean, here they, they burned $50,000 worth of magic books. Okay? Is there an appropriate, is it ever appropriate to do mass destruction of materials that are found to be offensive? 
If so, what's the modern equivalent? I mean, I'm in a, a work environment in which I don't think anyone in my work environment has read a book in the last year. Okay? I don't know how the publishing industry is. Hopefully Tim sells lots of books, okay? But um, the people I work with don't read. Okay? What's the equivalent now of burning of books? You're not going to burn this thing. That doesn't work. Okay? Well, but you can delete the information. Okay. That's, in a sense, burning it. Okay. Well, the idea of burning it back in the day, what else were you going to do with it? If you felt it was a really bad influence on you, you disagreed with everything in there, Today, you know, would you give it to the Samaritan Center so that other people can pick it up and read it? it you know, the, the alternative, <laughs> if you felt like something was really atrocious and not beneficial for anybody to read, what would be the alternative? Don't give it, you can't give it away to somebody. That's, you know, bury it. I mean, what, what are your choices of things to do, uh, things that you think are really evil influences on your mind? I just have this question about what we do now um, etc. And I came across some statements of, in Mrs. White's writings about mental inebriates. Okay? That term, if you look up the term, you'll come up with several, several things about mental inebriates. You kind of wonder about things that we do, that I do, that makes my mind drift away from God. Okay? And I'm not talking about pornography or anything like that. I'm just talking about other. how do we carry on our day? Let me read some passages explaining mental inebriates. The mind that is occupied with exciting stories loses all relish for solid reading that would improve the memory and strengthen the intellect. Review in Herald, October 9. I am acquainted with many sad examples of the evil effects of this baneful practice. The imagination constantly craved its accustomed stimulus, and as the inebriate longs for his wine or tobacco, their mental and moral powers were weakened and perverted. They lost their interest in the scriptures, their relish for prayer, and they were as truly ruined mentally and spiritually as is the liquor drinker or the tobacco devotee. She mentions novels, but um, I don't think it's just novels. Novel readers are mental inebriates, and they need to sign a pledge of total abstinence as verily as does a victim of any other form of intemperance. Now, I'm not tempted by most novels, okay? But I can tell you what happened this week. And there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, let me just say, I'm not, I'm not treading on your favorite potion, Okay? I had to prepare for this lesson, okay? I knew about it several weeks in advance, and so two weeks ago I started, you know, getting materials because I don't want to come up here and have nothing and whatever. And you look, third, third missionary journey, what am I going to talk about that, you know? But, you know, there's this thing that I love to do. It's um, my friends will ding, and it comes through in this little thing, and that tells me to go look on this little thing, and they send me stuff. And, you know, an hour and a half later, I have looked at, I don't know how many videos of funny stories. You know, I'm not much of a cat 
you know, video person, but, you know, I love to watch people catch huge fish. <laughs> I don't like fishing, but I can't stand to sit there that long. Right. But they have in one minute a story in which they catch this humongous fish. And it only takes me one minute to look at that. But you know what? There's another one right after that. And right after that. And right after that. And, you know, an hour and a half later, I don't know how many fish have been caught or snakes or whatever else it is that these little natives are making, you know, these traps for or whatever. But it's it's fascinating, you know. And I found I was having a hard time preparing for this lesson because I was watching... Little animals being caught, or people jumping off of buildings off of another parkour stuff. That is incredible. You know, now they don't show them, well, they do show them some of the bad videos, show them about crashing and all that sort of stuff, but, you know, they're showing them doing these crazy things with the trampolines and, and, um, you name it, ropes or whatever, you know, these little spring lines, etc. I'm fascinated by that. And I can spend hours to the detriment of my spiritual life. And I have to go back to this um, statement wherever it was, oh, and, and, and replace my name with this novel reader business. Wendell Moses is a mental inebriate at times, and, they, and he needs to sign a pledge of total abstinence as verily as does a victim of any other form of intemperance. It's the same with television. I mean, even you just sit and watch the news all the time. It's the same, same thing. Hours can go by. We think it's good, but... Uh, that's not my advice. Okay? I go into the doctor's lounge. Oh, brother, they can just turn that thing off. So you it's know. a lot of people's advice. Yeah. Golf. Oh. I love to play golf. I've played it at least four times. Maybe five times. I enjoyed it when I played it. But to watch it is like watching ga- grass grow. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, you know. I such the grass. All right. Uh, um, wrapping up. So why do we have to limit ourselves? Is it because we will be punished if we do not? No, it's because we're born into sin. We have that in our genes. Is it possible for me to lose my hold on heaven by doing this? The saying goes, the enemy of the best is the good. What principle are we demonstrating here? By beholding we become changed. The worship, the law of worship, that's right. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We are being transformed into either His likeness or not His likeness. By what we behold, okay. By what we spend our time on, what our brains are being used for, you know. I always feel guilty because I have all these medical texts I'm supposed to be reading in the journals and everything. I just can't keep up, etc. I do hours and hours and hours, etc. And I can do that to my detriment as well, you know. It's the same process as described in other writings as being sealed, okay. You can be sealed into the truth or sealed away from it. You can call it different terms. It's the same process. Okay? Christ has promised, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. 
He will hear and answer our prayers. And faith appropriates the rich promises of God, believing they are for us. Many are enfeebling the mind by the reading of stories and novels and are losing their relish for the Word of God. They're becoming mental inebriates and will be unable to look at the solemn questions of life and destiny in the right light unless they put away this practice. Search the Scriptures and know what is truth. Lean upon God and know what is living faith and live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's for me. You know, and um, by God's grace, He's with us. You know, He will never leave us. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for being here, for being with us. May we truly learn about You. May we use what we have, the gifts that You've given to us, the inventions, the media all the things that you've provided for us, that we may be drawn to you, may we help others. And as we help others, may we become restored to what we should be, full and complete and perfect in maturity and love. Amen.